Hi, I'm Cassandra Fredrickson. And I'm Norman Mitchell, and we're the hosts of Lord of the Rings Minute, the daily podcast where we discuss, appreciate, and delve too deep into the Lord of the Rings Extended Editions, one minute at a time. You know there's a Balrog down there, right? It'll be fine. (laughs) Have you ever wondered about Hobbit economy or how wizards get their mail? Are you also in awe of Hugo Weaving's eyebrows? Then join us every Monday through Friday on our mission, quest, thing, only on DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Dueling Genre everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character and a great story i'm todd mack and i'm joe dorowski and this week we're discussing river song from the television series doctor who and to help us with our discussion we are joined by the iconic roving podcaster crystal beth hi hi I'm, i rove <laughs> yes i think i've heard you as a guest on more podcasts than anyone else as far as my listening habits go. It is my favorite thing and i i wouldn't have my life any other way uh, now, aside from being a uh, frequent guest on podcast, you host uh, a couple podcasts. Is that correct? I do. I host uh, The Fifth Element, which is a Movies by Minutes podcast where you talk about one minute of the movie The Fifth Element, one minute at a time for, I think it's 127 minutes. And we're on minute 96 right now. It's a lot of fun. And I do that with my uh, now husband, John Robert Wilson. I think that may be my favorite name of a podcast, of any podcast on the internet. <laughs> we had to jump on it. We were debating whether we wanted to because I was having so much fun just guesting. And I was like, I don't know if we could do it or if I'd be interesting enough, just me. Because it's like, a, I don't know, I feel like I'm one of those people that could be great like once in a while. But then when they're the whole time, you're like, all right, calm down. You're not really saying anything and you're just really excited. Can you relax? <laughs> Um, but when we we said the fifth element, it it was, uh, Christopher Dennis DeGuardia. I think he was one of the ones that helped us pick it out too. We were like, this is it. We're done. (laughs) Like, what do you think of that name? It's like, well, we have to do this now. Yes. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And the other podcast that I am a regular on is Unlimited Lives Radio, which is a video game podcast. And that's fun. We do that. I do that with a bunch of comedians and we stream live on Twitch, which makes it a fun, interesting way to podcast because you can't mess up. Yeah, one t- one take the entire way through. Mm-hmm. Just, we would not do well at that. <laughs> just like this podcast, nope. right, Andrew? You, <laughs> you love editing our single take for an hour every week. <laughs> All right. Well, as we said, uh, we're going to be talking about the character River Song, and we are discussing a two-part story from the fourth series of the revived Doctor Who. And depending on where you look, these are either listed as the eighth and ninth episodes of the season or as the ninth and tenth episodes. They're called Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead, and they were both directed by Euros Lin and written by Stephen Moffat. And Alex Kingston plays River Song, David Tennant plays the Doctor, and Catherine Tate plays Donna Noble. And these episodes originally aired in May and June of 2008. So we always like uh, when we're talking about these characters in these stories, we ask, how did we come to this story? So, Crystal, how did you come to Doctor Who in general or these episodes? I started watching Doctor Who. It was always something that was in the back of my mind to watch. But when something has so many seasons and such a history, it's very daunting. And uh, when it came out on Netflix, I think in 2000. 
10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, I don't know, somewhere around there. Um, one of my really, really good friends at the time was into it a lot. So I started watching it with him and I caught up with him and I just blew through the season so fast until I caught up. I'd, I actually ended up catching up with uh, Matt Smith and having to buy it on iTunes. So, you know, you're I committed think, to binging a show when you reach that point and you're like, I'm going to go buy the episodes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, you take my money. <laughs> I need to know what happens. It's just a good show. Yeah, uh, it really is. I came to it as uh, regular listeners of this know, I've mentioned a few times a dinner group in in grad school where each week someone else in the group made dinner, but we always watched. Uh, it started out as Lost Night and kept that name forever. And then we started uh, cycling in different shows or adding shows so that we just stayed together longer while watching shows. And so Doctor Who awesome. was the first one that got added to Lost. So we watched an episode of Lost and then Doctor Who and then other things got cycled in when Lost ended. And there was enough Doctor Who at that point that uh, we didn't, we never, we never, I don't think we ever caught up then, but I really enjoyed the series. And then I kind of lost track. Like, I haven't seen any of the Peter Capaldi, not because I'm like, ooh, Peter Capaldi. I just haven't gotten around to it. But after watching Same. these two episodes, I was kind of like, mm, I might need to go start back at, <laughs> at the beginning and just run right? all the way through the Peter Capaldi. <laughs> yes. That's a, I picture your dinner parties being all of you not quite knowing if you can hang out if you don't have a movie and like freaking out when one of it ends and you're like, we have to put something else on the television. We don't know if we're actually no. friends yet. No <laughs> eye contact. Just stare at the screen. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. So I think that you introduced me to Doctor Who by watching the Weeping Angels episode that Blink. we talked about before, Blink. Mm. And then... I don't remember if you and I watched this one at some point or if I just started and watched. I don't have a, like a really clear memory of watching this for the first time, but these are two of my most favorite episodes of television. <laughs> Full stop. Mm, this is yes. so good. And when, when uh, River Song walks through that wall, I just like, I almost started crying today just <laughs> seeing it. Like I was so happy to see her and I forgot how much I love her as a character and I love David Tennant as the doctor and oh my favorite <laughs> I think he is mine too and I I I know that I've kind of gone back and forth like oh I like I like Matt Smith Peter Capaldi's good and David but seeing him today I was like no I really think he really is my favorite like this is peak who for me well I knew yes same here I knew you liked these episodes, Todd, because when I said, we're going to have Crystal Beth on, and she asked to talk about River Song, and you just said, are we talking about Silence in the Library? Yes. Like, you knew the episode <laughs> <Yay>! title. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know. I have to go look what her first oh, appearance is called. Oh, man. It's so good. Mm. So good. And I uh, had forgotten what happens at the end of this episode, but my goodness. Hit me like a freight train today. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And I, I was mentioning a little bit earlier that Doctor Who is just so lovely, because the first time you watch it... You're like, wow, that's a good episode. And then you watch it all the way through and you really develop relationships with these characters. And then you watch from the beginning and you sob for the entire yes. season. <laughs> Every episode you watch, either you're covered in goosebumps or actually crying. Yeah. Because everything starts coming together and you get lines that didn't mean anything. Like when Donna Noble at the beginning of the episode says spoilers. Yes. You yes. don't think anything yeah. of it. And then by the end, you're like, I need to get that tattooed on my body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Uh, really good stuff. All right. Well, we also always like to cover a little bit of trivia. And with Doctor Who, there's just too much trivia to be done. So mm. it's going to be, I'm just kind of waving a white flag at trying to cover some Doctor Who trivia. I will just say that the series 
is very old. Uh, it originally aired from 1963 to 89, and then there was a break and it was revived in 2005. And for most American fans of Doctor Who, I think it's this 2005 on um, series of Doctor Who is the one that they have connected with. Though I know the older episodes were airing on PBS, and I certainly have run into people who were fans of the old school Doctor Who because they aired on PBS mm. when they were kids. They were the yeah. original fans. They're the, they're the yeah. snooty fans. Yes. They're I am like not Doctor an OG. Who before. <laughs> yes. Before it went mainstream. <laughs> I'm mainstream. Hipster. What are they called? Whovians? Yes. Yeah, Whovians. <laughs> I haven't watched any of the older episodes. I've seen like two just by chance. I've seen two of the older I've fallen older. asleep partway through probably three of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cosplayed as the eight doctor i've only seen and i hadn't seen that one i just borrowed my friend's costume but i looked really cool nice <laughs> this story uh the silence in the library and uh force of the dead was nominated for a hugo award which those awards go to uh the best science fiction in the year and right before this episode aired it was announced that stephen moffat would be taking over for russell t davies as the main uh lead writer and showrunner on doctor who uh and russell t davies was responsible for the relaunch and kind of bringing it back and uh, ensuring his popularity, but Stephen Moffat had written some of the most popular episodes, uh, and so he was selected. And I think he is, this is his last run right now. Uh, the the final Peter Capaldi run. I think he's still the showrunner, but he's announced he's leaving. I think that's mm-hmm. right. That sound right? Yeah, you, yeah, definitely. Because there's a new doctor. Yes. Okay, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening, and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would also like to support us uh, financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quickcasts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers, and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Okay, I'm about to do the full synopsis for this, but listeners, if you want to go watch the episode before you listen to this part, it is available streaming on Amazon Prime. It's no longer available on Netflix. but Or, you know, you can get your hands on the DVDs for a reasonable cost for how much entertainment is packed to each season of Doctor Who. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's totally worth it, li- dear listener. <laughs> Just, you, I don't care if you stop right now and go on, you've got you've to watch this. <laughs> so good. All right, we begin with a little girl floating through a massive, endless library while a voiceover asks her questions. When she opens her eyes, we see that a therapist or a counselor named Dr. Moon is talking to her while her dad watches in the background. Every time she closes her eyes, though, she is the only person in this infinite library. Suddenly, a door rattles, and she freaks out because she's always been alone in the library. And then the doctor and his companion... Donna burst through the door. We cut back to just a little before that scene. The Doctor and Donna have just landed at the library, which is an entire planet that has all the books humanity has written. Donna picks one up and the Doctor snatches it, telling her to watch out for spoilers about humanity's future, though admittedly he's pretty rubbish at helping her avoid those. Uh, the Doctor notices that there's nobody in the biggest library in the universe, and that is odd. He scans the library and found, finds two humanoids are on the, the planet, but he, if he scans for all life, he finds a million, million life forms. Can, we, can I stop you here? Yeah. I have a question about mechanics. Okay. I don't understand how the library actually works. Uh, it's it's very hand-wavy. How a library works? <laughs> no. <laughs> how this library just, works. Like, how, oh. do they, how do they know for certain... That they have every book that humanity has ever written in this library. How can you know? Well, the doctor said it. That's how you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> maybe they maybe they have uh, people that scour. They have different people that are just sent to search one specific thing. And it's not even documentaries. It's like, and we're not like uh, 
biographies or something. It's a biography and they're like, they have one person that searches for all biographies about one person or one group of people born between December 22nd and December 24th, uh, <laughs> between the years 1914 and 1915. And it's one person that's whole job is to just do that. And they better do it right. <laughs> and they better do it right. That would suck. I'd hate that job. Todd, you're welcome. Or Crystal, you're welcome to interrupt with questions about the mechanics of this episode. But I just warn you, if we go down that path. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. This summer is going to take uh, a while. There's just, there's just a few. But I mean, that's kind of a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's see. Creepy. Oh, okay. They come across a creepy, <laughs> welcoming robot statue thing with a human face that plays a pre-recorded welcome message and then calmly repeats the last words of the head librarian, which are an urge to run because nowhere is safe. The doctor asks for any other messages and one plays that says, count the shadows if you want to live. And the the, uh, the creepy robot face is saying this very calmly. <laughs> the doctor reveals to Donna that, Donna that he came here because his psychic paper received a message asking for his help. And listeners, if you're unfamiliar with Doctor Who, just know there's all sorts of crazy gadgets that just show up with no explanation, like psychic paper. The and lights... I love that they don't explain them, by the way. Yes. I love that they don't it explain it. Yep. Just, just run with it. Uh, the lights in the hallway that they're in start cutting off, and because they've been warned about shadows, they run, and they burst into a room. A security uh, robot is floating in the room, and when the doctor says hi to it, it drops dead on the floor, and we cut to a shot of the little girl from the beginning opening her eyes. Then she starts hearing a buzzing, and we cut back and see the doctor pointing his sonic screwdriver at the droid. This is another one of those objects. It's just a magic tool that makes a sound and does whatever he wants it to. <laughs> and it is fantastic. I love the sonic. Uh, he realizes it's like a deus ex machina in his hand every time <laughs> for, for every episode. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yes. Doctor Who, or the Doctor, realizes that the droid is alive, and he stops scanning it. Donna asks a question about the library, and another creepy statue with a human face starts talking. And it says that this face was selected for Donna, and was donated by a patron when he died. Which kind of creeps Donna out. Wait a second, I have a question. Yeah. Do any of you remember, that face on the statue is not the face of the guy that she meets later? No. I don't think no, so. No, it's not. Okay. No, he has a much slimmer face. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, another group of people enter the room, and this is weird because as far as they knew, they were the only two people in the entire library. This is a team led by the archaeologist Professor River Song, and she recognizes the doctor, but he does not recognize her. This group is funded by a pompous wealthy man, Strachman Lux, fantastic name, and his family built the <laughs> library, and he is insistent that things be done his way, which of course riles the doctor, who's used to everything being done his way. <laughs> Uh, the doctor explains that almost every species in the universe has an irrational fear of the dark, but it's not really irrational because in the dark are the Vashta Narada, which is, uh, hearing David Tennant say that over and over is just fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, it is. This is an interesting statement. Almost every species in the universe has an irrational fear of the dark. Is that really true? Well, we, it's really hard to prove that, Todd, since we're the only species we I, know of, and I think there's a pretty healthy... We're not healthy the only species we know of. We couldn't even say... Could you even say that all the species, most of the species on Earth have an oh, irrational well, fear of the dark? I assumed he was referring to like, my dog. species. My dog does not have an irrational fear of the dark. Well, its dark is different than yes. our dark. dark. So, my thought is, so, in the Doctor Who universe, there's a, there's so many humanoid species and creatures that I imagine from the Time Lord's... Uh, perspective that the number of humanoids that might be scared of the dark would outweigh the quote unquote priv primitive species like cats aren't afraid of the dark they love the dark raccoons love the dark lizards they probably love the dark i don't know octopi but, love the dark I, they live in the dark yeah and 
there's an octopus that just recently learned how to shut off a light so he could enjoy the dark more. That's a story <laughs> for another day. Um, but I, my rationale, because instead of, I, w- I would be a terrible scientist because I'm not like, I never go, why? My brain always goes, yeah, I can make that work. And my thought <laughs> is that there are so many more species that we don't know about that are afraid of the dark that the species we know are just like a pinch of salt on the top of the pile. I also was reading it more, or I interpreted it more as like sentient species that he interacts with, that kind of, yes. you know, has communication with. Kind of an egocentric uh, view of the universe, but well, the doctor it is the healthy, doctor. <laughs> a healthy ego. <laughs> okay, so he warns them about the Vashta Narada. And now in this group is a woman named Miss Evangelista, who is mocked by the rest of the group for being a uh, little less than smart. River Song thanks the doctor for answering her call on his psychic paper. She asks to compare diaries to see what they've already done. But then she realizes that this version of the doctor has never done anything with her because it's the youngest she has ever met. So for him, this is their first meeting. When the group tries to contact the main computer core of the library, they appear on the little girl's TV screen. Uh, the one from the very beginning of the episode. But then that connection gets lost. The doctor tries to look at River Song's diary, but she says that's against his rules and won't let him. After they disappear from the little girl's screen, she starts button mashing the remote to try and get the channel again. And in the library, books fly off the shelves, so she's obviously having some sort of impact on the library. Donna takes time to try and bond with Miss Evangelista, and Miss uh, then Miss Evangelista walks off, and we hear her scream. The group runs and finds a skeleton, and they realize that this skeleton was Miss Evangelista. Her communicator was connected to her neural, uh, like her neural network, just some sort of vague sciency. <laughs> like <laughs> her communicator was connected to her brain, and she is doing something called ghosting, where like her neural pathways are sending some final messages through the communicator. She's not quite actually dead, and this lets her speak a few final thoughts, even though her body is a skeleton. And her final thoughts are a request to speak with the nice woman, who is of course Donna because nobody else had been nice to her. We cut back to the little girl, and Dr. Moon talks to her alone and tells her that the library is real, and there are people who need her help there. At the library, the doctor explains that the Vashta Narada hunt in shadows and are usually not aggressive, nor nearly as prevalent as they seem to be in this library. They notice that Dave has two shadows, and as a means of protecting him, they plan to use the doctor's sonic screwdriver to make his spacesuit more dense, uh, just so it's harder to chew through to get to Dave. At this moment, River Song pulls out her sonic screwdriver, which surprises the doctor. The doctor goes and finds a transporter and sends Donna back to the TARDIS to keep her safe. But we see her start appearing in the TARDIS and then scream, and then she disappears mid-transport. They seal Dave, the one with two uh, shadows, inside of his suit, but the Vashta Narada still get in and make uh, the suit, or well, they eat him within the suit, and then we see a skeletonized skull, like just a skull looking out of the suit mask, and the suit kind of comes alive and starts hunting the group. So the Vashta Narada are are animating this spacesuit with a skull face in the mask. They're so Uh, smart. Yes. As the group run away, they meet one of those creepy human face statue things, and it has Donna's face on it, and it is repeating, Donna Noble has been saved. Donna Noble has left the library. The little girl is watching this group run through the library on her TV. She changes the channel, and she sees Donna Noble in kind of a a classic, like, small English town, and Donna Noble is meeting Dr. Moon. And Donna starts flashing through different stages of life as Dr. Moon talks 
It talks about her dreams of an adventure with the Doctor in a blue box, but says that was just a dream. And things are definitely odd and jumpy in Donna's new world. She meets a man named Lee who has a stammer, and they begin a courtship, and they're married within, like, two scenes. Like, just a flash of a scene of them on a first date, and then a flash of a scene at a wedding, and then a flash of a scene, and they have twins. And Dr. Moon says Donna has done so much in seven years, and it's a pleasure to see Donna fully integrated. Suddenly, Dr. Moon disappears, and the Doctor is in his place. But then the Doctor disappears and Dr. Moon has returned. I have to say something. So when I was little, I watched a movie. I think it was Follow Me Boys or something. <laughs> but there, it does this, like, jump cuts and you quickly see, like, a guy and then he gets older and then he gets married and then he's, like, has kids. Uh-huh. It was before I understood how technology and, like, movie making actually works. And it was just totally wondrous to me. And I remember laying in my bed and closing my eyes and thinking, when I open my eyes, I'm going to be older. <laughs> And it never happened. (laughs) But I really thought that it would work. Well, it worked for Donna in this world. It did. And it's really creepy. I'm actually really glad that it didn't work for me. I don't think I would have been really uh, prepared for it. (laughs) Yeah. So we come back to the library where River offers the doctor her screwdriver because it is more advanced than his. He grills her about how she got it, but she won't give him spoilers. She does whisper one word in his ear to make him trust her. And he says, they're good now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she just whispers this one word. But he's clearly shocked and confused at this. Uh, he's wondering what in the world is interfering with his sonic screwdriver. And Strachman Lux says the moon isn't really a moon. It's what he calls a doctor moon that is constantly scanning the computer at the core of the planet for viruses. One of the surviving members of their group, Anita, realizes that she now has two shadows. And the doctor tries to strengthen her suit like he did for Dave. The doctor realizes that Dave's animated spacesuit is back in the room with them and they all run, which is a great scene where, because <laughs> because they've said it, they're like, oh, there's five of us still alive. And if you stop and count in the room, you see the sixth spacesuit in the uh, background, but mm-hmm. you don't really do that until the doctor draws attention to it. He's like, wait, so there's good. six of us in here. The little girl from the beginning, she changes her channel to the library, uh, from the library to Donna, and she sees Donna and her kids playing. Donna keeps seeing a veiled figure in a black dress, like very Victorian morning era. <laughs> black, black veil, black dress. Uh, and it kind of creeps Donna out. Donna hears her mail slot creak late at night, and her husband Lee goes to get a note, and the note says, the world is wrong, meet me at your usual park tomorrow. Time jumps ahead for Donna, and she's now at the park talking to the veiled woman. The woman explains that time is very weird here. She says they've met before, and she wants to return kindness to Donna because Dina, Donna showed kindness to her. Now we cut back to the library. This gets very jump cutty at the, as the uh, mm-hmm. this last episode pick, picks, picks up the pace. They do that by shortening the scenes and jumping between the three kind of worlds more rapidly. Yeah. So I like they the blamed it on the world too. What they were that? like, oh no, they're the the time's fast here. Go, go, go. <laughs> yes. Uh, the doctor is having or trying to have a conversation with the swarm of Vashta Narada that are animating Dave's spacesuit. And the Narada begin to respond. The Vashta Narada say they were born here. This is their world. The doctor says that's impossible. The Vashta Narada lay spores in trees and there are no trees on this planet. There never have been. It is an artificial planet. Then he realizes they came in the paper of a million million books on the planet and they hatched here. So they think it is their home. We go back to Donna. Uh, the woman in the veil makes Donna realize that all the children playing in the park are the same. They're duplicates of each other. Donna rips the veil off the woman's face and it's Evangelista, but her face looks like it belongs in a Salvador Dali painting. It's all weird and morphed and dripping. Uh, and we cut back to the library where Anita, the one who had two shadows, she asks River Song why she trusts the doctor when he doesn't know her. And River gives a great monologue that I'm not even going to try and summarize about how awesome the doctor is, how he can march up to the TARDIS and snap his fingers uh. and it opens his doors. The doctor walks in and yells, spoilers! And then he tells River, that's not even how the TARDIS works. River says it does for the doctor. 
<laughs> the doctor realizes that the patrons of the library have been saved in the computer. They transported away but had nowhere to go because the Vashta Narada were everywhere in the library. And the computer has saved their pattern. So think like the Star Trek transporter. You disappear. You're in the computer for a little bit and reappear somewhere else. They're paused in that computer stage. All the patterns of all the patrons that were on the library uh, on the last day that had any people there, they are saved in the computer and have been living a virtual life inside of the hard, uh, the hard drive of the computer. We cut back to Evangelista telling Donna that Donna is a perfect match of herself because she was actually transported. Evangelista is corrupted because she was a data ghost caught in the computer's Wi-Fi system. The little girl uh, sees Evangelista tell Donna this, and she starts to freak out. She throws the remote, and that actually starts a self-destruct countdown in the, the, the library. The surviving group members all go down to the computer core of the library, uh, we go back to Donna questioning her reality, and that makes her children disappear, and she freaks out because her children are gone. Uh, down in the computer core, Strachman Lux reveals that the computer is actually a child hooked up to a mainframe. Strachman's grandfather's youngest daughter was dying from a fatal disease, and she loved books so much that Strachman's grandfather built the library and hooked his dying daughter up to the computer so that she could live a virtual life with a father who loved her and with all the books in the world. When that girl felt the shadows in the library, she transported all the patrons out and is storing them inside of herself. The Vashta Narada, at this point, have eaten Anita, and they use Anita's spacesuit to negotiate with the doctor. So they start speaking through Anita's spacesuit. Uh, and the doctor says, you're going to release all of the humans in the mainframe. You're not going to attack them. We're going to have one day to get them off, and then you can have this planet. The Vashta Narada say no, and then the doctor says, I'm the doctor, and you are in the biggest library in the universe. Look me up. And then the Vashta Narada agree to his terms. <laughs> they don't want to negotiate anymore. Uh, the doctor plans uh, to hook himself up to the computer because something, something, techie, techie means he needs to be hooked up to the computer to free the people. This is really vague. This was the weakest part of the episode for me is I don't know why he was hooking himself yep. up to the, uh, the computer. Do you know why, Crystal or Todd? No, I don't. Uh, I don't care. This yeah, episode's so good. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'll just say like this, this part. They needed, a, they needed a power surge to get. Uh, the bodies out of there because there wasn't enough energy to get out or something like that. And so they're going to take the energy of the human life, I guess, or or the doctor's life. Um, Right. Okay, we'll take that. (laughs) Uh, But Riversong comes back and knocks the doctor out, and she hooks herself up to the computer. He wakes up, he's handcuffed, and he he sees her about to allow herself to die to save all the people in the computer. She tells him about some of their life together and the great adventures they have. The doctor says she told him his name, and there's only one reason he would ever tell anyone his real name. She warns him about spoilers, and then that techie tech thing happens, and she dies as the 4,000-plus patrons reappear in the library. Uh, as the patrons transport off the planet, Donna talks with the doctor. She's been looking for the man she married in her virtual world. She didn't know if she w- if he was just a construct of the virtual world or if he was one of the patrons that had been in the library. She has not seen him, so she assumes he's, she just invented the perfect man for her. <laughs> she asks the doctor how he is after River Song, and he says she's like, he, he is all right. She says, is all right, Time Lord Code, for really not all right? Because if it is, I'm all right too. And they turn and leave in a very melancholy shot. And then we see Donna's virtual husband standing on the transporter pad. And he sees Donna walk by and he tries to call out to her. But because of his stutter, he can't get her name out. And then he's transported away. It's so sad. So sad. (laughs) Man. Uh, The doctor leaves River's journal uh, that has all the spoilers for his adventures with River and her sonic screwdriver. And he and Donna plan to to walk away from the abandoned library planet forever. Suddenly he runs back. If he's had a lifetime with River's song and he knew this was the day she died, why would he give her 
a sonic screwdriver. He realizes it must have been copying some of her consciousness, and he races back down to the hard drive and plugs her, the sonic screwdriver in. And then we see River Song in a perfect virtual world. Since the doctor has repaired the core, she can now live a perfect virtual life. Then the doctor goes back to the TARDIS and snaps his fingers, and the doors open. Ah, <gasps> <sighs> man. Is so it good. perfect, though, if you know your life's virtual? Yeah, I was wondering about that too. No, that that was a, definitely a, a discussion question that I had for us. <laughs> like, I wanted yeah. to, uh, somehow to like she goes into the virtual world and then they still transport her body back out. I don't know how or why, but, but then it wouldn't be the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, very, um, very... There's there's a a lot a lot to like about this episode, but mechanically, it is not the strongest piece of writing <laughs> I've ever seen for for making the you know all the the beats of the story like logically yeah. work like dramatically they work See, but logically I was say, not so much. dramatically the the writing is phenomenal there's yes. so many good quotes that just make you hit it hits you in all the feels but there are so many things that happen when you're like oh come on just so <laughs> i guess like technically i guess like the technology of the show i was like well what do you what no and if you watch the so we'll, we'll start with the three bad things I have to say about it. And then we'll get to the end with the good stuff. We call this our picking the nits phase. So go ahead. Yeah. We're going to pick these nits out. And the nit that I, my biggest problem is this episode is great because you get to see the end of a relationship and the beginning of a relationship at the same time, which never happens. And my problem is, is throughout the rest of the series, you never see David Tennant with, or the 10th doctor with River Song. And she says she doesn't recognize that it's not him at first. And then she's like, oh, you're so young. I'm like, no, that's a different person. I know. And then she, she has a problem recognizing Peter Capaldi, the 12th Doctor. So that thing, one thing doesn't line up for me and other people, too, because the Internet talks about it all the time. And that's <laughs> the one thing going back where I'm like, I wish they just had one more episode where her and David Tennant got to do something. Yeah. Ugh. One of the things that she writes about in the journal or, or hints at him, because she, in her monologue at the end, she, she like name drops events that all sound fascinating. I don't think we see any of them. <laughs> but she does say something about, He's... we, I see you and you're in a different suit mm -hmm. and we something, something. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I think she. You've got a fresh haircut, you're in a new suit and we're at the, uh, oh my gosh, what is it? Why am I brain farting on this? Asgard at one point. Yeah. There's an actual, there's an actual place like the hills or, um, uh, the uh, funny thing this is, this means you've always known how I was going to die all the time. We've been together. You knew I was coming here. The last time I saw you, the real you, the future you, I mean, you turn up on my doorstep with a new haircut and a suit. You took me to Derillium to see the singing towers. See, what singing a night towers. that was. The tower sang and you cried. So that uh -huh. would be, is she saying the next time she's going to see him? The or the next time the he would see her, time. the second to last time that <laughs> she saw him. Well, for her, the, and this is what I, okay, I love this, and it's also frustrating to try and tie <laughs> out, but the idea of two time travelers having a relationship, and that every time they meet again, they compare notes about what adventures they've had, because they're living their lives out of order with each other. It, like, yes. I love that idea. And it is fantastic. Yeah. And we just get enough hints of it that, it, like, it blows your mind when you see this episode. It, like you were kind of saying, Crystal, like, in the future, the way it plays out doesn't line up as beautifully as the hints we get at two time, two time travelers living their relationship out of order. So I think this right. is the answer to the question. I think she's saying yeah. the second, the very, the last time that she saw him, which would be the second time that he sees her, 
the real you, the future you, I mean, you turn up on my doorstep with a new haircut and a suit. You took me to Derillium to see the singing towers. What a night that was. The towers sang and you cried. So that would be, that would be this like the missing episode in which David Tennant picks her up and they go on a date. But it's the, for her, it's right before this. Well, and no, she would know that this is the second to last time. But that doesn't make sense for the, her having the sonic screwdriver she has because it's more advanced than the one that he has. Is that when he gave her the screwdriver? She says it was right. It Because he says, I had my whole life and I gave it. She said something that makes him think she just You got wouldn't. Me. And he then uh, River says, you wouldn't tell me why, but I suppose you knew it was time. My time. Time to come to the library. You even gave me your screwdriver. That should have been a clue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's. Do in we, the the husband's episode from t- the new episodes that the Peter Capaldi, that's when she gets her own screwdriver. Okay, so that, that was an episode where she gets the screwdriver. So the screwdriver is recent. She didn't get the, get it in any of the David Tennant or Matt Smith, Matt Smith seasons. She got it later. So the timeline adds up where now the doctor has had two different generations go through where he had time to modify a sonic screwdriver off camera where he can finally give it to her. But their timelines are so messed up that even the order that they see each other that we see is out of order of when they see each other. So we can't watch Doctor Who and see what their relationship is. Even if you watch the, there's YouTube videos that are of River Song's timeline with the Doctor. Even when you watch that, more than half of the time she's meeting him, they're seeing each other for the first time. Or Matt Smith is like, no, we've never kissed before. That's interesting (laughs) and fun and fascinating. But it's like, you were married in episode one of River Song. You're married now. You were married then. Then River Song's a child. He knows her as a child, like as a baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's this whole, and it's, it just makes it that more magical. And the fact that, Doctor Who kind of plays by the Star Trek rule where it's like, yeah, we don't need continuity. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Everyone gets it. This is fun. Anyone that has gripes with it, you're just overthinking it because it's a fun sci-fi show where they just freaking kill it at a cool and interesting <laughs> relationship. Yes, they do. Yes. And uh, like this idea that for the Doctor, it's his first meeting and it's seeing his wife die. And for her, this is the end of you know, however many meetings they've had, you know, enough yeah. relationship development for them to be married. And she dies uh, at, at, for him, their first meeting. Like it, it is so hard Can to wrap your head around, that? but it's so great for, for science fiction and time travel. Yeah. Stories. Like finding out that you're married and being like, well, now you're dead. <laughs> like <Right>. what, <laughs> what happened? Like, did we go on a honeymoon? <laughs> like, did we have a kid? I mean, I'd have so many questions. So I, speaking of questions, I, there's a thing that I wanted to talk about here and it's about this idea of spoilers. And, uh-huh. and I think that it ties in to this idea that we're talking about here, but it's about the idea of watching something for the first time versus rewatching it. And, mm. and I think, I think, I feel like, like I'm close to this, but I can't, I can't quite put my finger on what's going on here, but there's, there's, so there's a certain kind of joy that comes from just seeing something cold for the first time and Mm -hmm. like watching this episode, for example, for the first time, there's something just magical and, and delightful in not knowing what's going on and seeing it happen, sort of putting the pieces together. Uh, that's really fun, but there's also something really special for those of us that have seen this maybe multiple times and we still go back and dip from this well. And we still like cry our eyes out when river song dies at the end. And it spoilers, Right. (laughs) 
But like we know exactly what's going to happen and yet we continue to go back. And yet at the same time, we have this whole hang up about spoilers. Yeah. And it's not, I, I guess what I'm saying is it seems to me that it's not like one way is better than the other way. They're just different. But the thing about the spoilers one, like I have, uh, uh, um, what, experiencing life spoiler free is that you can only ever do it one time. Right. And so, and I think that's why the hang up about spoilers. Mm-hmm. And that kills me. <laughs> the, like, I wish I could see things for the first time over and over again. But exactly what you were saying about Doctor Who, there are episodes in Doctor Who that just mean so much more. And we were actually talking about this before we even started recording, because obviously when you're passionate about something, you can't wait for action to start. You start talking about it early. Um one of the best things about Doctor Who is when you go back and all of the weight from the other episodes is on your chest and you go back and you watch this episode and the entire time you're just sobbing because you know what's going to happen and every word weighs more on you and means more and it's just so beautiful. <laughs> I love her. When she says, uh, oh. he came when I called just like he always does, but not my doctor. Now my doctor, I've seen whole armies turn away, turn and run away and he just swagger back to his TARDIS, open the fingers with the, the doors with the snap of his fingers. And like in my mind, I can picture all of those great mass miss episodes with, um, yeah. uh, Devil's Run and like, oh man, so it's so good. And I love, I love how this kind of world building where the more you get, the more you enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think with this kind of storytelling, like what Steve at Moffat's like strength in storytelling is kind of these, these puzzles where he's hinting at things and you don't see it all come together till the end. And mm-hmm. what I think the joy of rewatching is you catch all of those right away. Whereas the first time through, like maybe you catch some of the hints that he's throwing your way or showing you some puzzle pieces, but you kind of forget about them. You know, then you get to the end and we're enjoying the drama of like the, all this that happens with River Song at the end. So I watched these last night and then when I was writing the summary again today, I, I had them on as I was writing the summary so I could make sure I wasn't forgetting anything. And as I was writing it, like so much more was standing out because I just watched it before. Mm-hmm. And so it was definitely yeah. a different kind of enjoyment that came. But I think Stephen Moffat's writing is very strong for that rewatch and enjoying the the uh, stratagem that he's laying out um, in front of us, even if we can kind of pick some of the nits about, <laughs> you know, well, the logic of this yeah. world is really weird. And as I was writing the summary, it bothered me a lot more. Like, what exactly is happening with the Doctor and River here at the very end? Why does one yeah. of them have to die? But I didn't mind that the first time. It was only when I was trying to explain it in the summary where right. I'm like, how do I explain this? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. when, you're, when you're caught up in the emotionality and the drama of it, that matters. So, so in some ways, I guess there's strengths for just running through that first time, uh, and then a different kind of enjoyment. But maybe you see a few weaknesses if you do the rewatch too. Two quick thoughts. One is the there's this great um, Portuguese poet called Fernando Pessoa, and he said one of the greatest what is it, what's the word he uses like one of the greatest regrets of my life or tragedies of my life is that I can never read Pickwick Papers again for the first time. And, yeah. <laughs> and there's like so many things that I, I kind of feel that way about. Um, the second thing that I was going to say was, oh, I think I lost it. it was It'll come be, back. It was going to be really good. It's going to be the best moment of our podcast. It history. was. It was going to make you all cry for <laughs> joy. Well, while you're getting Thanks. that crystal, there was something you were going to say. Why don't we? Um, I was, I was going to mention, um, I know, I don't remember if it was both of you or one of you that said that you don't remember watching this episode for the first time. It was me. Yeah. And very rarely can I remember something that I love watching it for the first time. 
Very rarely. Like, I wish I could remember on Star Wars. I wish I could remember for The Fifth Element. Like, any movie, I wish I could remember seeing it for the first time. I can remember the exact feeling, emotion, time, a day, everything about the first time I saw this episode. And I was so jealous. I had actual feelings of serious jealousy, like when you see the boy you like talking to another girl. (laughs) I felt Donna's pain. And Donna wasn't even in that much pain. I was in more pain than Donna. I was like, who is this girl that's going to come up in here and pretend she knows my doctor? And by the end, it's, and this is a, you know, a testament to the acting of this. By the end, I was just, I loved her just as much as the doctor. At the end of the first episode, the first half, I was like, oh my God. But I I was actually jealous. I was really like her chemistry. I was like, of course, he would date her before me in an instant. I'm not that cool. I'm boring compared to her. When she calls him pretty boy. And he doesn't even realize she's talking to him. Yes. Such a great moment. (laughs) Pretty boy, you're with me. And he just keeps doing what he's doing. And she's like, pretty boy. He's like, what? I'm pretty boy. Um, and Catherine Tate's like, yeah. Yeah, you are. <laughs> oh, then she says, I think I said that a little too quickly. <laughs> I remember the thing that I was going to say. It was about um, it was about writing and how sometimes we say, like, this is a perfect story or this is perfect writing. And last week, I don't know what order we're posting these in, but we recently talked about the, the novel Holes. And we said, this is like a perfect story in that there are no nits to pick with the the mechanics of the story with the way that like point a leads to point Z in the story. But then we also said at the same time, like the writing is, you know, whatever, whatever. It's not like the most emotionally rich story ever. Or it's not like the turns of phrase that make you go, wow, I just read the perfectly crafted sentence. Right. Like it's not Neil Gaiman and it's also not, (laughs) I don't know, some other thing, but so I, I was, anyway, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, so could, could we, does this fall into the category of like, this is a perfect story. And I would say, you know, I was like mechanically, no, but emotionally I would say, yeah, we're like yeah. pretty darn close. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. And from the moment, I mean, all the acting and, and when you, as you realize what's going on, you pretty much get what's going on here that this is the end for her and the beginning for him mm-hmm. by the end of this. And, and you're just torn up about it. And it's so, so good. So I want to talk specifically about river song. What is it about her that makes us all, I think love yeah. her by the end of that first episode that she's in, like this is a great character, but what is it exactly that makes us feel so, so connected to her so quickly? I, I, for me, it starts at her smile. She's, so she has resting smile face. Like even when she's not smiling, there's a, even when she's sad, there's still a little twinkle in her eye. And she has a little, she's a little, she's just snarky enough that she keeps you interested in the next thing she's going to say. But she has this very loving motherly feeling where she just feels comfortable. When I watch her, I'm comforted. And I don't, but she was even like that on ER. Like the actress in general is just a very warm feeling person. And for me, that that's what gets me. I feel like she has this quality that the doctor himself has, which is when she's around, you feel safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, like everything's going to be okay because, because the doctor's here. 
And to see somebody step onto the screen and, and transmit that same kind of, uh, confidence and security. It's, I think it's the reason why by the end of this, we're like, of course she's with the doctor. There's no other person on the planet that's a better fit for him than she is because, because they both have this, uh, th- that quality. So in storytelling, yeah. there's sometimes this trick that gets used where you, you build up like a, a bad guy. And you think this is the really bad guy, and then another person comes along and just squashes him, and you're like, oh, no, that's the bad guy. And that establishes, like, the credentials of that bigger, badder guy. I know that happens in professional wrestling. It happens in superhero comic books, like, uh, where where this is a way to, like, establish the credentials of the new character that you're just introducing, but you instantly want everyone to know something about them. And for me, she comes in, and she doctors the doctor, right? Like, he always marches in and is completely unflappable and knows more than everyone else in the room and takes control. And she comes in and he gets flapped like the unflappable doctor <laughs> yeah. doesn't know what to make of this woman. Yeah. And she is in that role that he typically is in of just utter confidence and a self-assurance that she's going to, you know, be in control of the situation. But it, and the, the thing, the other thing that I love about her, her is that it's not like she squashes the doctor. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's there saying, okay, you need to do your thing because we're all expecting you to do your thing. And it's not like she's, she's certainly not subservient to him, um, or below him or beneath him in any way, but it's like she knows that she can trust him. And then when she whispers that word in his ear and she says, and he says, yeah, we're okay. It's like it brings them up to this level where they both have 100% confidence in each other. And it makes this team that mm. is, I mean, it's a, it's amazing. <laughs> right, but I can that remember moment, he was when definitely... she said that word. Oh yeah, I was sorry. like, "What was it? What was that word she said?" <laughs> oh, up until so that moment, mad. he was off his game, though. And yeah, like you said, that's what like, kind of restores his confidence. That okay, I don't understand everything, but I'm still the doctor, right? <laughs> and and it rather than like having the situation flipped on its head or the doctor flipped on his head, she like writes the ship, but it's it's a better ship because they're both there. And uh, I, I think it's awesome. Oh, yeah, it's good. It's she is just such a special character in all of film, movies, books, everything. She's just so cool. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited to talk about her. Well, I also love that in this episode you get kind of um, another version of the know-it-all character that could be evil like annoying um the, the what's the name of the wealthy guy again i, I know lux lux like he comes in and thinks he's in charge and tries to you know take control of the situation and that's one kind of i mean it's an arrogance and river song played incorrectly could come off with that kind of arrogance yeah. and the doctor uh, sometimes they deliberately show that you know to, to other people he comes off as arrogant but river song just comes in with this confidence that kind of radiates and comforts yeah she's uh mm-hmm. she's pretty great i love when is it when anita's dying and And she says, whatever, she says something like, whatever did that to her, I'd like a word like that. Or, oh, when, uh, when she, she's dying and she's crying. Oh, yeah. And she's like, uh, she says, um, and I'd like to have a word with who did, with who did this, who was responsible. No, oh, gosh. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. So there's two things. First of all, she says, uh, you know, I like. About Evangelista, I think she says, I want a word with whatever did this to her. Yeah, yes. whatever did and this to her, whatever killed her. It's the I'd doctor like who says that. that. It's yeah. the doctor who says that. Yeah, he says, um, 
Yeah, I'll you killed you. my friend, and uh, you killed someone. I it, it killed someone I liked, and I'd like to have a word with that. Uh, but I think what you're trying the, the scene you're remembering is Anita says, "What does she say?" To the doctor, it- she says, "River Song whispered a word to you, and it gave you complete confidence and trust in her." I'd like a word like that right now. Yeah, doesn't she say that? Something along those yes. lines. Yeah, I could use a word like that right now. Something that's going to give her confidence. So good. And the doctor uh, then realizes that there's 4,000 people in the computer hard drive, and he kind of ignores Anita for the next little bit. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Like, it's a great line that she delivers. The doctor does not follow through on it very well. (laughs) Um, I'd like to talk about Evangelista. Is that her name? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Miss Evangelista. Miss Evangelista. I think she's really interesting. And she says something that I've been thinking about, and I don't really know what to make of it. So at the beginning, she's like, she's really pretty, but she's not very smart, and everybody makes fun of her, and Donna's nice to her. Then Donna gets sucked into the virtual world, and Evangelista shows up, and she's got this creepy, like, Victorian dress with a veil. And she pulls the veil off, and her face is all... uh, Salvador Dali. Yeah, Salvador Dali, thank you. And then Evangelista says, we're only strings of numbers in here. I think a decimal point may have shifted in my IQ. But my face has been the bigger advantage. I have the two qualities you require to see absolute truth. I am brilliant and unloved. What do you make of that? Uh, I think that she's still jaded from her previous life where she thinks that to be loved, she has to be pretty. This is also one of my least favorite parts of this episode. I don't like how they trivialized her as a character because she was pretty and then made her smart and then... She was useful and ugly, ugly and useful. So she was like pretty and not useful, but then ugly and useful. It would have been cooler if she was her pretty self, but she got here and realized, oh, I can be smart and pretty. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a not nice thing to. It makes and that's binary. one thing that. Yeah, right. Uh, I don't know. It's one thing that uh, Moffat, I don't think, does well is write women. Mm-hmm. And he also. He did write River Song, right? Well, yeah, he he did. But that Donna has a great episode, but Evangelista, I agree with some of the issues you're raising, Crystal. Uh he the characters that come in are well rounded and I think they're done well with the actors that are doing them, and I know that everything's gone through a lot of rewrites, but the side characters, I'm not those are like two and even um oh uh Clara, she's Clara's good too. Like she's written well, but the women's side characters are very basic, general, one-dimension. And it's a side character, I get it. But it's a really crappy thing to show kids, in my opinion. And to, like, have that be a takeaway... Like, that line sticks with me, too. Like, it is... Like, here, I'm I'm delivering a theme. Like, it almost feels like I'm serving something really meaningful, uh, you know, on a platter to the audience. And I don't know what to... Like, I don't agree with what's said. (laughs) And, and and I agree with everything Crystal just said about some of the, the problems with it. But the way it's presented in the show, it's like, this is a deep truth. Well, mm-hmm. it, so she doesn't say, I have the two qualities required to see absolute truth. I'm, I'm brilliant and ugly. She says, I'm brilliant and unloved. So it, it, one thing that it made me think about is um, this. There's a novel that we talked about a while ago called Till We Have Faces. And it's about a woman whose name is Orwal. And she's... Um, incredibly ugly and her s- sister is Psyche who's incredibly beautiful and um, and Orwell is just really interesting and there's a lot of really cool stuff done with her character I think Joe and I would both agree this is like one of the most interesting novels that we've read in a 
a long time. I'm gonna read it. So it makes anyway. It's a uh, it's C.S. Lewis, and it's a rewriting of the story of um, Cupid and Psyche, and it's told from the point of view of Psyche's sister, who is brilliant and like rules the kingdom. She's she's really really ugly. And uh, anyway, so. But I'm thinking, anyway, I just keep going back to this. I'm brilliant and unloved. And I'm wondering what is, what is about being unloved that allows her to see a truth that people who are loved don't see? And I'm, is there anything there or is this just like, well, it's bad writing. I don't really agree with, I don't, I don't like this character as she's written. And so there's, there is no truth here or is there something there? I, I mean, there, there's, it's one of those things where you start getting into lines and you're like, ooh, this is the fun part. We're like, I don't think they even thought this hard about the lines that they yeah. were writing. Um, I always wonder with that where I think it goes back to what I said before where I don't think that she thinks that she can get anywhere without being pretty because that means she's not loved. And then not being loved made it so she had to branch out to do other things, which in her mind, she was never able to do do the smart stuff. So now she's able to detach from emotions a little bit more. And that makes it easier to focus because when you're in, when you are, when you enjoy something or you love someone, you get a little bit more blinded to other things. Like you get blinders on a little bit. Mm -hmm. Something about the line. And I'm sure some of this is the dress that she's in, but it feels very Dickensian to Mm me. Um, (laughs) and, And I think, Sometimes in the in the darker Dickens tales, there's this idea that kind of permeates some of his his bleaker works about like there's the real world where there's all this suffering. Then there are other people who are kind of protected from the suffering because they're in loving households. Um, and it seems to me like some of that maybe maybe something that she'd be getting at is this idea of like um, protection or shield, you know, being shielded by your loved ones from some of the darker truths of the real world. And by being unloved, she just exists in this bleak, dark world. It's uh, the contrast here is is Donna, right? So Donna is loved, and because she's loved by Lee, she can't see the reality of that they're that they're living in. So I I like that I like that idea of protection, that being loved. I mean, maybe what they're saying. I don't know if I agree with this, but <laughs> but maybe what Moffat is saying is. That when we are loved, not when we love other people, but when other people love us, they protect us and meeting mm-hmm. our needs in certain ways that that protect us or it can like, shield us from some of the darkness. Yeah, it shields us from seeing stuff that we otherwise would see and maybe would make us act in different ways or something. And anyway, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. It's one of the most kind of provocative lines for me in the in the story where on the face of it i'm like no of course not and then the more i think about it i'm like wow maybe there is something there but i don't really like the thing that it's saying (laughs) because it's saying that because i have loving relationships and people who love me there may be things that i don't see that i that i could see or should be seeing and that's an uncomfortable thought Because I want to see everything, right? Like, I want to see the world for what it is. I want to see the world clearly. I want to see truth. But I also don't want to give up being loved by other people in order to get there. And if that's, you know, if, if, if that's the, the bargain to be made, give up all, all of the people who love you and you'll see the world for what it really is. Like, I don't know if I'm going to make that Faustian bargain. (laughs) Yeah. It also gets into like what will, when we say truth or what it really is, 
Like, why is the truth of being in a loving relationship any less than the truth of someone who is experiencing a much harsher reality uh, because they don't have that protection? Um, well, and, and you're dealing with, like, yeah. perception. And is perception reality? Or is reality reality, right? <laughs> like, is 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 Wh- there... Which, we have this virtual world, and this, I'm sure, is one of the is there a capital? Is there a capital R real that that's there that even could be, like, touched or, or seen? Or is it all just smaller reality that's just based on our perception? And so my reality is your reality and just depends on point of view. I think about this all the time. Like this exact <laughs> conversation we had, if I'm ever not talking to someone or if I'm alone in a room somewhere and you see me just staring off into space, this is the literal conversation I'm having in my head about this. Because I'm constantly in this weird thought of like, what is... What's reality right now? Because my perception is different than everyone else's. And what, what is my background and what I have going on in my life bringing into here, into this area that I'm in and altering what I'm seeing and how I'm seeing it? Because I'll be like an example of like, oh, maybe I feel really uncomfortable or awkward and I feel like everyone's looking at me and I'm like the weirdest one here and my anxiety is like through the roof and I just leave. And I think that everyone noticed that I left and no one even noticed that I was like there. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> not in a bad way, not in a bad way. Um, but it's perception and reality and what's real and what's real. And what, like, and when the Mr. Moon says to Cal, the real world's fake and the fake world's real, I was like, Oh, don't. Oh, no. <laughs> I, don't do that. <laughs> to the little I'll girl. Blow up. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty yeah. harsh. Yeah, and you're responsible uh, for saving the real world. <laughs> That's yeah. the other part. Yeah, and you're responsible. Good luck. Here's a remote control. Godspeed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good stuff. This is why oh. I really, really like Doctor Who. <laughs> it makes me think about stuff like this. Yeah, it's so good. Oh, I love it. And it feels good, and I'm happy when I'm watching it, even <laughs> when I'm crying. So this um, episode, the other the other Doctor Who episode that we've covered so far in our podcast was on Blink, which was also re- written by Stephen Moffat. And I think it does one of his favorite themes, which is making uh, the the ordinary threatening. Yes. I'm really glad mm-hmm. you brought this up. So that one ends with like this great warning about statues. Like you better not blink when you're looking at a statue because anyone could be a weeping angel. Uh, and it's, you know, and then it, it has this montage of all the statues that are just in everyday life, you know, around, around a city. And then this one does yep. the same thing with shadows, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that you better count your shadows because <laughs> it could be the Vashta, was it? Vashta Narada. Vashta Narada. Narada. Um, why do you think, and I'm sure I'm, th- I'm thinking through his run. I think this is a well that he dips into. Semi-regular yes. as a theme. Why do you think that is something that we see coming again and again in Doctor Who, particularly because that's, you know, he's, he's been the showrunner for quite a while. Like, what is he, what is he trying to get at? Is it just to make us uncomfortable as viewers? Or is there anything like more theme- with more thematic heft to it? I don't, I feel like it's, I don't think that it's as deep as we want it to be. I feel like there's a lot of things that have gotten played out and a good writer wants to make things scary that are not usually scary. Like the dark is terrifying. I still can't stand next to my bed at night in the dark without jumping three feet from the bed to it. Cause I'm like, there's something under there, right. even though there's no room for anything under there. All my crap's there. It's a, a much 
I guess, scarier thing when it's something you're used to and something you see. And in in the case of this episode, something you can't even touch or feel or grab until it's too late. And he does the same thing with the episode of The Silence. Mm-hmm. With that, when you have to put the hashtag, the hash marks Which is on your so skin. Oh, it's such like, a good episode. It's so nuts. Um, and then every time you look, it's like there's a, a billion of them. You're like, oh my gosh. But it just makes you so uncomfortable that when, even when I was watching this one, I was like, if I watched this when I was 10, I would have been done. I would have been so scared all the time. My kids I just were lifted- trying to watch it with me today. <laughs> Uh, Daddy, what are you watching? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about this one. My my eight year old who loves books and like we just had to put another full five shelf bookcase in her room for her books. She saw me turn on the beginning and she saw the girl floating through the library. She's like, I want a library like that. What is this? I was like, I can't remember everything that happens in this Doctor Who episode, so I'm not gonna let you watch right now. You're a better father yeah. than I am because <laughs> yes. I let my kids watch it, and then I have moments where like. My kids walk or are watching something, and then the the silent silence of freaky alien guys show up, and my kids are like, oh. "Daddy, what is this?" I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry. They're like, "It's real life. Those are real." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, doctor, doctor, and if you don't go to bed on time, they're coming <laughs> they're after coming you. They're coming to get you. Doctor I mean, that being it. said, I'm sitting here, and I just had to lift my feet up off the floor talking about this. <laughs> and put my feet on the couch because I didn't want my like. This is what Doctor Who does to me. It's terrifying. Well, the series is so tonally different from one episode to the next that it like there's I could name off the top of my. I mean, I have watched dozens of episodes with my daughter, but then some of them get like really like like as far as creepy level, <laughs> like to a level where I'm like, I don't know, there's, you should be watching this yet. The one with the kid and the thing under the bed. Yeah, that one is. That yep. One, that was one. That one was almost too scary. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an interesting idea, um, like what makes us scared. And there's, when did we talk about it? We talked about when, uh, when we talked about Battlestar Galactica and there's, there's uh, fear of the other. And so you get like fear of monsters Mm -hmm. and then there's fear of what's close to you, but that you don't, it's, uh, it's, uh, Unheim, like it's, uh, the sinister. What is, is that the word? What is, uh, what, what's the term that Freud uses? Sinister? Oh, I, I don't know. Shadow? We talked about this. No, that's you. <laughs> no, it's uh, Unheimlich is the is the German word. I think it's uh, sinister, where he talks about uncanny. Uncanny. Thank you. It's uncanny. Um, in Spanish, yes, they in Spanish, they siniestro. So it's uh, uncanny. So and, and uh, that's what uh, like the angels and the silence and the Vashtanarada and the monster under the bed. That's the uncanny. It's the idea of there's it's something in everyday life that you thought you knew. And then the moment when you realize you don't understand this thing, uh, and that it's potentially way darker and scarier mm-hmm. than you imagined. Um, and that I'm Freud would say there's, it's, it's potentially way more scary than having a monster show up, mm-hmm. uh, is realizing that some part of your own world that you thought was benign is not. To me, it's kind of like a variation on Hitchcock's idea that in filmmaking, to scare the audience, you don't actually show them the monster. Yes. And I've seen this, like, for, uh, like, when Shyamalan was making good movies, I always, uh, <laughs> I always was like, like, whenever he actually showed the alien in science, I'm like, oh, that's kind of lame, actually. <laughs> like, like, I wish it had been left off screen. And this is like a variation of saying, I'm not going to show you it because it's already there and you already know it. But you should be uncomfortable with it. <laughs> because, you know, it's not that the monster itself is scary. It's that this thing that you know is off. Like, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's different than what, what you already knew. And it, it to me, I, I like that as a storytelling technique 
more than like showing a scary monster or doing like the cheap jumps of, mm-hmm. you know, a, a face suddenly dropping into the screen or anything like that. Yeah. I, uh, it's a pretty, when it's done well, it's a pretty effective way of scaring people. And, uh, <laughs> we all, speaking of C.S. Lewis, we, he said, we all want to be scared. <laughs> oh, but yeah. We know we're safe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. When you know you're safe. Playing scary video games is one of my favorite things in the world. I love getting nervous, but that's because I'm like, Underneath my favorite Star Wars blanket in my safe, safe apartment <laughs> and not outside. And I ski. I love being scared, but I hate being scared. Oh, it's fun. Mm-hmm. Let's scare each other. <laughs> oh, what's the scariest? Like, I know it's, this is not about River Song, but I'm curious now as to what your scariest, the scariest way someone's ever scared you before. You mean like a practical joke? Yeah, or just like, and not like, or like any kind of scared. Like, what if, if I'm like, what was the most scared you ever been? What was it? Uh, nothing is leaping to mind for me. I'm going to take a moment to let my thoughts marinate in this question. Um, I uh, to, uh, to fill up the silence. I can, I have one. I had a boyfriend that liked to scare me a lot in college, and I love love slash hate being scared. And one night we were all upstairs. Uh, all, there was four roommates and I, and we were all upstairs and all of a sudden we realized that the living room light was still on and everyone was like, who shuts it off? And we were all like, noses, but I missed it. And I was like, oh, I have to go shut it off. Well, darn. So I went downstairs, shut off the light. So it was a dark downstairs and dark upstairs. So I start walking up and or walking towards the stairs and the, there's a little bit of light coming from the street light outside through the window above the door. And as I'm walking by the stairs, the stairs are at like face level. I'm walking and out of the corner of my eye, I see a face walk like someone walking right next to me, but the stairs are there. So there, a body physically couldn't be there, but there was definitely something walking next to me. And as I walk a little bit further, I get start getting really scared. And I'm like, don't look, don't look, don't look. Cause that makes it real. So eventually <laughs> I start to turn and look towards the face. And as I'm doing it, the face starts turning and looking at me too, very slowly. And I was like, (gasps) and I got so scared that my, like my hands curled into like gnarled little claws and I started shaking and couldn't breathe. And my dirtbag boyfriend had slid a mirror down the side of the stairs so as I was walking by in the door, the dark, I saw my reflection in the mirror. <laughs> and it was such a simple thing, but just the shadow of me in the dark scared the pants off of me. So Moffat has it right. Like he knows it's that little, the little stuff that gets you. Okay, I totally have one. All right, you go ahead, Todd. Okay, so um, I was a missionary in Spain and we had... In my apartment, there were a couple of missionaries that were, um, they were struggling with, uh, some emotional stuff. And so we would go out and work in the days and sometimes they would be home a little bit earlier than we were. I got home one day with my companion, the lights in the apart, the the lights in the, so I'm trying, I have to, so there was like an entryway in our apartment and then a long hallway that went down to a, to a living area and along that long hallway there was a little doorway that went into a kitchen area so i walked in and there was some kind of music playing in the apartment but it was 
really sc- like scary soundtrack music of something. I don't know what it was, but it was like screeching violins and it was scary, really scary. What? And I walked in and this missionary, he's like, he like pokes his head out and he, he looked like he's embodying a velociraptor from Jurassic <laughs> Park. He's like, oh God. And I was like, what in the heck is going on? And then he comes running down the, down the hallway straight at us. And he shuts off the lights and he jumps into where the kitchen is. And I'm like, my heart's oh. just pounding. It's like, what in the world is going on? And so I'm, I like walk up to where the kitchen is and he's in like this, he's like, He's like crouched in the corner of the kitchen and he's doing this velociraptor thing, like, like making these noises. And then my other companion like walked in and then he, he like springs at my companion and then, and then like flicks on the lights or something and he's laughing and he's like, ah, like what a joke. And I looked down and I had a big kitchen knife in my hand. (laughs) So had you known it was a missionary crawling around, like, or did you, like, you, in your storytelling, you said, oh, I saw a missionary, but did it, was it just a weird shape moving down the hall? No, it was him. It was him. Like, he poked his head yeah, around I know, but, the, but around like, did thing. you know it was him when you saw it? Yeah. Yeah. And then he runs down the hall and goes in the thing. I thought, I don't know, I thought, I, anyway. He turned on the light and I, and I had grabbed, I had grabbed this big kitchen knife and I was holding it in my hand. And I was just shaking. And he was just doing a prank. It was a total prank. And he's like laughing. And then they looked at me with the knife and they were like, oh, that was probably a little over the top. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, 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 that's terrifying. Really scary. (laughs) When you were telling Doctor Who episode, (laughs) when you were telling your story, Chris, it made me remember a time in my house where my wife and I were up on the the top floor and our kids are there except for one daughter is down on the lower floor in a different bedroom but we heard a weird noise in the house and so i went down to check and the whole house is dark and i'm using my phone as the light and i go all the way down to the bottom of the house and like i'm you know i'm trying to do my performative masculinity and be tough and walk through but really i'm like i just really hope i don't see anything at all (laughs) that's my goal is that i don't see anything weird and i go all the way down to the basement i don't see anything i turned on all the lights and i i so now i'm turning off the lights as i go back up and it's back to being pitch black and I'm looking at something on my phone because I'm like, well, the house is fine. I, I was probably checking an email or something on my phone. And then I see this glowing figure against the wall. And like, I, like, full, every muscle tense, I jumped. I made a weird, just interesting sound. All it was was our bathroom door that was usually closed was open. And it has a fully clear on it. And I had seen my own reflection <laughs> underlit on my phone. <laughs> was, you know, so, so my, oh, my phone was yes. down low. So my face was being lit from the bottom. <laughs> like a scary campsite <laughs> yeah, story. Campfire story. Really funny. <laughs> But it was because of the mood of, you know, having just gone all the way down to the basement of the house and, you know, making sure that there's nothing weird in the house. Like, there's still some of that residual adrenaline tension in my body. Uh, But, yeah, yeah, one of the scariest moments I remember in my life, I saw my own reflection in the mirror. It was fantastic. Yeah, isn't that, like, they need to do more Doctor Who's about that. You just see yourself and you're like, ah, oh, no. Oh, my face. We might be getting along and Andrew can totally cut this if he wants to. But in that same apartment in Spain... um, my companion and I got home one day and the front door was open <gasps> and we were like, Oh no. And so <laughs> we walked in and there was this, um, so missionary apartments are just full of random things because you're there for six weeks and then you get shipped off someplace else and people leave stuff behind. And so in the front entryway, there was, um, there was like a, a bucket for holding umbrellas in it. And in the bucket, there was a sword 
because oh. in Spain they sell in Spain they sell lots of swords, like souvenir swords. And so some missionary had bought a souvenir sword and forgotten it in the in the umbrella thing. So my companion, he pulls the he pulls the sword out of the bucket and then he yells really loud in Spanish. He says, I have a sword, I'm going to kill you. And then we proceed to go room by room through our entire apartment, opening like every closet and looking under every bed, thinking oh, there's somebody my in gosh. there. I have a sword. That's really funny. I have a sword. I'm going to kill you. And we so we made it all the way through, check the kitchen, check the living room, check the one bedroom, got to the last bedroom, check under the bed, go to the final closet. It's like, if anybody's here, they're in this closet. And then we open the closet and there's nobody there. And we both just let out this huge sigh of relief. It's, uh, it's started a shame. Laughing. That, yeah, it's a shame that they didn't have any swords in the library because they could have just chased out the really? the bad guys with that. The Bastonarada. Yeah. Because I'm yeah. sure that they respond really poorly to swords. <laughs> yes. Hey, swords are scary. I don't care what you are. I don't care if you're dust and sunlight. That's right. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up this episode, I do have to say I loved Donna in this two-parter. I do too. Yep. Especially the first episode. Strange. Uh The second one, like, you get the gut punch of uh, uh, the virtual husband being on the transporter pad and not being able to call oh, out her name. I hate that. And yep. that, that is a big gut punch. But for me, the, the best character moments are her going and talking to Evangelista as a friend, like, saying, no one is treating you very well, so I'm going to do it. Like, she just steps up to that plate. Yeah. Uh, it, and I think this is a lot about her character because so often, like, the doctor's companions are there to let the doctor step up to the plate <laughs> because there are these big galactic problems that only the doctor knows how to solve. But that, that was just a very intimate relational moment where she's like, ah, no one else is doing what needs to be done. I'm going to go do it. Yeah. And highlights, I think, yeah. one of the doctor's weaknesses, which is he sees the big picture, but he often doesn't see the little picture. Like, he doesn't notice. Like you said with Anita, like, you just killed one of my friends. I'd like to have a word with whatever did that to me. But Anita's mm-hmm. forgotten, like, three minutes later or 30 seconds later by the doctor once yep. some other big problem shows up and it's nice that he has, and I, I, I don't know that it, this is exclusive to Donna, although Donna does it really, really well in sort of being kind of the emotional, what I don't know, she's sort of like the, the companion <laughs> to the doctor. I don't know. I like it. And she's, uh, mm. yeah, she, Catherine Tate's really good. Mm. Yeah, it's good. All right. I like final- this. Show. <laughs> any final thoughts, Crystal Beth, about River Song or Silence in the Library? Oh, uh, just good, good whole everything. I'm so glad we got to talk about this. <laughs> Me too. Uh, well, Crystal, when we have a first time guest on the podcast, because our whole uh, mission is to talk about great characters and great stories, we like to ask our guests if you could have a dinner party with any three to five fictional guests, any characters from any story ever, who would you want to have just to sit back and enjoy their conversation? Okay, so I thought long and hard about this, and I was like, what, who would I want to see interact with each other, and I just sit back and listen, because it's different with who I want to talk to, and who I want to see interact together are Legion from Marvel Comics, (laughs) talking to himself, (laughs) talking to himself, but also all of his different personalities, if they were going to possibly come out, Lyra from... Uh, his Dark Materials by Philip Pullman, who has both her and her demon, where both of them will be talking at the same time. And the third person would be Zaphod Beeblebrox, 
with him and his other head talking. And I want to see all of them interacting with all of their different thoughts and different people trying to have conversations. That's what I'd want. I like that variation or as an answer to this question. Uh, yeah. That Yeah, everyone is bringing multiple voices to the party. Yeah, like who, what would happen? And it would be different every time we put them together. <laughs> oh, fantastic answers. I really like that. That was really good. <laughs> I don't know who... I thought uh, about it. Who is Zafrod Beeblebox? He's from... Uh, the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide Hitchhiker's to the Galaxy. Guide to the oh, which is a, a book yeah. I've never read and a movie I never saw. Well, we're oh, gonna gosh. The, the book is we'll, so we'll good and so fast. Oh, Douglas Adams. So good. Yeah. Oh, and it's yeah. a great one for our podcast because we, we try and do a novel every month and sometimes that's hard for us because we're both, we both teach also. Uh, uh-huh. and we're often teaching literature, so we've got other things we've got to be reading. <laughs> but, uh, the first Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a very quick read. So having quick reads in the back pocket for our podcast is always a great thing. And it's so funny. It's, oh, so I, I've read it six times and I laugh out loud every single time I read it. It's so good. Ugh. Anyway, I love him. Yeah, it, uh, we, I, will, I will get it on our future schedule now. Oh, I can't believe we haven't done it yet. It, it, this happens all the time, though. Like, we're 100, I think this is our 140th episode. And pretty constantly we're like, oh, how have we not gotten to that character yet? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there's a lot more to cover. Yes. Okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. For show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review there. It really helps us out. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 40, when we discussed Sally Sparrow in the fantastic Doctor Who episode, Blink. Uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have great conversations there with our listeners, and we'd love for you to say hello anytime. Crystal, how can our listeners find you and your shows? Well, you can find me on social media, pretty much all of it. At, and by all of it, I mean just Instagram and Twitter because I don't understand anything else. And I'm <laughs> at the Crystal Beth. And you can uh, listen to both of my podcasts, both The Fifth Element and Unlimited Lives Radio on iTunes. And if you want to listen to other Movies by Minutes podcasts that I do a lot of guesting on, if you go to moviesbyminutes.com, there's a whole list of them. And I've probably been on one or two, but check out those boys and girls. They're great. Awesome. And thanks so much for coming on. It's been a total pleasure to have you. Yeah. Real quick, I was also going to say, if you enjoyed our discussions about things that are scary moments in our lives, you might want to go back and listen to episode number 98 when we pitched scary movies uh, or scary storylines. Uh, or episode number, I think it's 45, was our first Halloween episode where we built our Mount Rushmore's of fear and talked about the scariest things yeah. in storytelling for it's us. Scared Ooh. the heck out of each other. It was pretty fun. Uh, if you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. And thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. You'll be amazed at our one-take intro reads. We've <laughs> never had to restart, ever. <laughs> Not since last week. <laughs> <laughs> okay.